2. And for the past two lessons, we've been looking into the greatest miracle that ever happened in the history of the world. When God spoke this world into existence by merely just speaking the word, when God created man and breathed life into him, that was a great miracle. When God caused a flood to cover the entire world at the time of Noah, that was a tremendous miracle. When Moses stood before the Red Sea and lifted up his staff over the sea and parted the waters, that was a miracle. When Elijah called down fire from heaven to consume a sacrifice, that was a miracle. When three Hebrew children went into a blazing inferno, into a fiery furnace, walked into that furnace and then came out without so much as the smell of smoke on their clothing, that was a great miracle. We could go on and on throughout scriptures and talk about many miracles that are in the Word of God, but the one we're discussing is the greatest miracle that has ever taken place, and that's when God stepped down off of his throne, when God descended to this earth, when God, who is transcendent over all of his creation, decided that he would house his immensity in the frailty of human flesh. That was the greatest miracle that ever occurred. The incarnation of Christ is the greatest miracle in the history of all the world. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul is in the midst of a a discussion about Christian life experience, and he revealed in the last part of the first chapter that God has ordained that we are to suffer for him in his life. This life, God has chosen it to be so. We cannot avoid it. And because we suffer for Christ, the teaching of this chapter is that it's best for Christians to be helpful to one another to support one another, to take care of one another. And so to drive that point home, uh, Paul goes to the greatest example of humility and abasement and self-sacrifice that, that he could name, that he could give, and that's by directing our attention to the actions of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ became a man because that was the only way that we could be lifted up. He lowered himself to exalt us. And that is a powerful demonstration of what Paul says here in Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. He said, Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves. And so in demonstration of that point, he gives us the humiliation of Christ and he shows the downward steps of God until he reached the lowest point possible. He stepped off the throne, he made himself of no reputation, The Bible says he became in the form of man and even the lowest form that humans can take, and that is of a servant. He was subordinated, he was separated, he was degraded, he was deprived, even to the point that he allowed himself to be put to death. And then the death that he chose for himself was the most humiliating death that's possible, which was the death of the cross. So we've been studying that downward spiral of the Son of God, this lowering of self down to the very rock bottom. And that's the example for our humility. But it's Paul's purpose here in the Scriptures to show us that God does not leave us at rock bottom. Jesus was willing to go to the very very bottom of all things, I mean, to the very end of his life. But then finally he was lifted up to the top. And so that's what we want to discuss tonight. We've been studying the descent of the Son of God, and this evening we want to talk about the ascent of the Son of Man. So if you would please, let's stand and let's read from Philippians chapter 2, and we're going to back up to verse number 5 tonight. 
Our text verses will be verses 9 through 11. But let's start at verse number 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Heavenly Father, we just uh, thank you so much for each one who's come here tonight. And what a powerful uh, passage of Scripture that we've just read. And as we even spoke last week, we are inadequate to explain all of this, to really understand what it's all about. But we do know, Lord, that it's absolutely true because you've spoken it in your word. And help us, Lord, to make this our example of humility, to lower ourselves when we need to, to help those who are around us. Lord, we just pray you might bless the message tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Verses 6 through 8 are the descent of the Son of God. And verses 9 through 11 are the ascent of the Son of Man. And I want you to notice that change in terminology that I've made here. Because when Jesus stepped off the throne, he was God. He came off the throne as God because that's what he eternally was. He's never anything less than God. Uh, Jesus did not experience any other form. He is the, or was, before he stepped off that throne, the invisible God. And when he stepped down, he was God only. Now, verses 6 through 8 describe to us where the Son of God went. The Bible says that he came down and he went lower than the angels. He came down to the body of a man. He came lower to become in the form of a servant, even lower to the experience of death, and even yet lower, the Scripture shows, to the humiliation of the cross. And that was a death that was for, uh, reserved for the most despised of all human beings. But now... Here, having become a man and going to the lowest point that's possible, now he begins to go upward. Now, going downward, it was God who was descending, but starting upward, he is the Son of Man exalted. And so he's still God. He's never ceased to be God. But now there's this added dimension to Christ, uh, which is his humanity. And so as he starts upward, he is the God-man. So let's talk about first tonight the exaltation of Christ. The exaltation of Christ. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him. And as Christ goes upward in his exaltation, there's a new dimension that's been added to his person. Now, I need to remind you at this point that nothing can be added to Christ to make him anything better than he ever was. He's always... He's always been what he was. He's God. You can't add anything to God, to the essence of God. But having become a man and carrying through with the purpose of redemption that God gave him, now Jesus has been assigned new rights and responsibilities that have been bestowed upon him by the Heavenly Father. 
Now, you'll have to do some thinking about that because I'm at a loss to explain how that could take place. I can't understand it completely. God is a trinity, and we don't know how this works out in the Trinitarian formula. That's beyond our comprehension. And yet we know that this is true, that when Christ came to this earth, when he became a man, there was that added dimension of humanity and human experiences. So here, beginning in verse number 9, Paul starts the steps upward that the Savior took in his exaltation. So in his exaltation, first of all, we know, uh, uh, was his resurrection. He started up, and first is his resurrection. He wasn't left in the grave. There are other resurrections that we read about throughout Scripture. We find them in both the Old Testaments and the New Testaments. But Jesus is the first one who came out of the grave never to die again. And he's the first one that was ever raised under his own power. All of the other resurrections that we read about in Scripture, the power of God was definitely called upon, but the person who died was not the person who gave his own life back. But in the case of Christ's resurrection, he gave his life, and then he took that life back, and he did it under his own power. As we studied in uh, 1 Corinthians, the resurrection of Christ is the guarantee that he has the power to raise all believers. So here you have Jesus. He's come down to the rock bottom. He's sealed uh, in the tomb by death, but then he was ready to start upward. Death is the lowest point that you can go, and you can't go any lower than that. And so if there's a change going to be made, it has to be an upward change. And so Christ in his resurrection began the steps upward. It's also amazing uh, to think about that the body of Jesus that went into the tomb is the very same body that came out of the tomb. Jesus did not leave the body behind. He's the God-man. And so Jesus didn't forsake the body in order to become the invisible God again. And throughout eternity, the way that we're going to relate to Jesus Christ is through that very same body. The same one that was crucified on the cross of Calvary, the same one that went into the tomb, is the same body that's resurrected. And throughout all eternity, the way that we're going to relate to Jesus is through that body. And when Jesus came out of the tomb, he appeared to his disciples, and he said, Behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit hath not flesh and blood as ye see me have. And so that's the start of it. He's the son of man that came out of the tomb. He's raised to ascend back to God. Now, that's the second step in his exaltation. Secondly is his ascension. He was raised from the dead, and so he's back on top of the ground, so to speak. And so for 40 days, Christ appeared to his disciples at various times in that resurrected body. Now, he's on that path back upward, but now Christ is a resurrected man. And so he stands in a different relationship to his his disciples. As a man before his death, they treated Jesus, the disciples treated him with familiarity. I mean, they could gently touch him whenever they wanted. Uh, They might do as we would do, as someone goes by quickly, you might grab them or, or reach out and touch their shoulder and turn them around in order to speak to them. As being a friend of Jesus, they would kiss him because that was the custom of their day. And remember that they were so familiar with Jesus that when Judas came to betray him, what he did was he came and he gave Jesus a kiss. At the Last Supper, the Apostle John leaned on Jesus as they ate that supper. 
I'm sure that there were times when the disciples were out on the Sea of Galilee and they were in the boat and the waves would come and the, and the waves would become boisterous and those men uh, in that little boat would be tossed around and no doubt many times that they would rub up against Jesus or, or fall on him or catch one another and they touched him freely as he was a man. But now Jesus is on the way back up and that kind of familiarity is no longer possible. He's on the way back up to his exalted position as God. And God is not someone that you just jokingly grab and that you stand up to and you look eye to eye to. Now, we just read that he did invite the disciples to touch him, but the only reason that he did that was to prove that he was real. Later on, when the apostle Paul saw him on the road to Damascus, we don't find any record where Paul touched him. When John saw him in the Revelation... He said that I fell at his feet as dead. John did not initiate any physical contact with Jesus. And when there was a touch, it was Jesus is the one one who initiated. Now, remarkably, there are many people who claim that they've seen visions of Jesus and their visions always fall far short of the way the Bible describes. Some people may say, well, I've seen Jesus appeared to me last night. He showed up in my bedroom And it's as if Jesus was going to snuggle up to them in bed. People talk about having visions of heaven. But when did you ever read in in all, all of these visions or anyone that you ever heard about where anyone said, I saw him in a vision and I fell at his feet as dead. So Jesus is not that familiar person that the disciples knew. And they couldn't freely touch him after he was resurrected because he stands in a different relationship. So Jesus was on the earth, he walked on the earth for 40 days, but then he went up. And in Acts chapter 1, the Bible tells us that when Jesus went back to heaven, back to his throne, to that exalted position, that's when he gave the disciples their commission. And what he said to them was that the Holy Spirit would come upon them, the Holy Spirit would be with them, the Holy Spirit would comfort with them, he would abide with them, but he said, I'm going back to heaven. I'm returning to the Father. And so he did. He ascended to the Father. In Acts chapter 1, it says, But ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and under the uttermost part of the earth. There he said, The Holy Ghost will come upon you. And when he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. So that was the next step in the exaltation of Jesus. He ascended back into heaven. Now, I want to go on because what follows in this exaltation is something that's truly remarkable. He's back in heaven, but now he has new rights and responsibilities. Now, thirdly, in his exaltation, we see his intercession. His intercession. And that's a new position for Christ. Because he descended to the earth to become a man, and because he was resurrected in his human body, now Jesus does stand in that different relationship to us than he had before. Before he came to the earth, he was the invisible God. But now having descended as man and risen as the Son of Man, there's something new that's in store for us because we're believers in him. And that is that Christ becomes our intercessor. He becomes the great high priest before God. Now, a priest is one who has the responsibility of standing between man and God. A priest is one who represents both man and God. 
And Jesus is a perfect high priest because he's truly experienced everything that man's gone through, and he's also experienced the other side in that he's God. So he couldn't be perfectly the high priest as God only, and he can't be perfectly a high priest as man only. He has to be both. And so in his exaltation, he becomes both. He's been touched with the feelings of our infirmities because he has experienced what man has gone through. Now he can sympathize with man, having experienced those things, but also he's God. And so he's seen the other side of it as well. So he stands perfectly between man and God as our intercessor. Hebrews tells us that the ministry of Christ is a more excellent ministry. It says that this ministry is built upon better promises than any earthly priesthood. It's built upon a better sacrifice. And because of Christ's sacrifice and because of his work as priest, we are now able to come into the presence of God. Now, God has exalted one and only one intercessor, and that is Jesus Christ. He is the way that you come to God. Now, what that tells us is that An earthly priesthood is no longer needed. It is the the height of blasphemy and transgression against the person and the work of Christ to say that there is any man who could stand between us and God. It's blasphemy to say that there is any priest upon this earth who could take the place of Christ in intercession. Now, it's interesting that in the book of Hebrews, we have an explanation of Christ's priesthood And in conclusion to that writer's arguments about the intercession of Christ in his priesthood, we find that there's an interjection of the Philippian theme that we've just been discussing. I want you to turn to Hebrews chapter 10 and verse number 19. And we'll see here how the writer there weaves in with the eternal priesthood and intercession of Christ the same thing that Paul talks about here in the book of Philippians. Now remember, what we're basing things on are... Paul's statement in Philippians 2, verse 3, he said, Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves. Now that's the whole point of the discussion that we have in Philippians. That's the whole point of Paul talking about Christ's descent and then the subsequent ascent back into heaven. So look at Hebrews 10, verse 19. It says, Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. And that's the incarnation we've been speaking of. And having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, For he is faithful, that promise. Now, notice verse number 24. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works. The exaltation of Christ and the intercessory work of the high priest is put here as the means or the reason why we consider one another to provoke to good works. Now, later on, we'll see in the conclusion of the message that the theme is that one who is abased as Christ willingly humbled himself, will also likewise be exalted as Christ was exalted. So Christ was brought low, he went low, and because he did, he's now exalted. So he arose, he ascended, and now he intercedes. Now, secondly, 
I want to consider tonight the coronation of Christ. In verse number 9, Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. There are many names that we read in Scripture that are given to Christ. Two of those names we've used in the titles of, uh, of these messages. I mean, he is the Son of God. He's also the Son of Man. But here particularly, as we talk about this title, the Son of Man, that fits in very well with verses 9 through 11. Because this is a title that refers to Christ coming again, not as a lamb of sacrifice, but as a reigning king in glory. Son of Man doesn't just simply just talk about the humanity of Christ. I mean, Christ came in his first advent as a man, but we find in the book of Daniel that that title, Son of Man, has something to say about Christ coming again. And in Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14, it says, And I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. And there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. Now that sounds remarkably like what we've just read in Philippians chapter 2. There it says, all will bow before the name of Jesus. Every tongue will confess that he's Lord. And that's what Paul says in Philippians. And Daniel says, all people, nations, and languages should serve him. So son of man, that's one of the names that's given to Jesus. Many different names are given to him. Many of you probably heard sermons about different names of Christ. Those of you that have been here for quite some time, if you, I don't know, you may remember that the very last sermon that Pastor Cregan preached here was a sermon about the names of Christ. And one of the names that, or, or one of the things I should say that's usually done in that type of sermon is that the person who's preaching will point out that Jesus is Alpha and Omega. And, of course, that means the beginning and the end. And we studied about that in the book of Revelation. In Revelation chapter 1, uh, Jesus is speaking, and he says, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is, is to come, the Almighty. And we've discussed that many times, how Alpha and Omega are the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. And so when Jesus says, I'm Alpha and Omega, that's the same as saying he's A to Z. And so preachers will preach about the names of Christ, and they'll use that as the background for giving all the different names of Christ in alphabetical order. And so they may start out with the letter A, and they'll name all the names of Jesus that start with A. He's our advocate. He's the, the second Adam. He's the author and the finish of our faith, and so on. Then they move on to the letter B, and they'll say he's the bridegroom. He's the bishop of our souls. He's the bread of life. And then on they go. Then you move to the letter C. He's Christ, the creator. He's the counselor. He's the chief shepherd. And then on and on until you get down to the letter Z. And you mention all the names that are associated with Christ that begin with Z. And so we find that throughout the scriptures, there are many, many names that are given to Christ. So there's some argument then when we come to Philippians chapter 2 about what Paul means when he says that he's been given a name that's above every other name. In verse 10, it says that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. So the question is, what is that name? Is it the name Jesus? I mean, is it J-E-S-U-S? -S? I mean, is that the name that he's saying is above every other name? Well, it would be kind of difficult, I think, for us to say that Jesus 
That name is a name that's better or higher or more exalted than any other name. It's not common in English-speaking countries to name children today Jesus. But how many of you have heard in the Hispanic culture that there are many people who name their children Jesus? Jesus, J-E-S-U-S. And so does that mean that every child that's born in a Hispanic family where they name the child Jesus, Jesus, that he has a name that's better than any other name? Well, I don't really think that that's what Paul is taking, talking about. So I think what Paul means is that when he speaks about a name that's above every other name, he's first of all talking about what that name represents. The name that Christ has given contains all the names that are given to him. I mean, Jesus and Christ, those are just two of those names, but this includes all names given to him. And I think it's better for us to look at this and find that Paul waits until he gets down to verse number 11 to actually tell us what this name is, the one that comprehends all other names. So we look at verse number 11. It says, And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So the name that's above every other name is the name Lord. Now, the translation of Lord in Philippians 2 verse 11 is from the Greek word kurios. And it's interesting that Paul would use this word because it's a word that the Philippians could very well relate to. In those times, uh, people that were citizens of Rome and Philippi being a colony of Rome, one of the things that they would do is they would uh, worship the emperor as deity. They would set up centers of worship for the emperor because that would curry favor with him. And so there was a test that was applied to, to people in the Roman Empire to check their loyalty. And so they had to say this. They had to say, Kyrios Kaiser. And what that means is Caesar is Lord. And so since the Caesars claimed to be deity, the Roman citizens would worship him as deity. But whenever they came to Christians and, and spoke with them and demanded that they would say, Kyrios Kyrios Kaiser, the Christians would never say that. Instead, they would say, Jesus is Lord. They refused to bow to Caesar as their Lord. Now, there are reasons for this, and two reasons I want to give you tonight is because that word Lord tells us that he is crowned with supremacy. Lord is the highest name that can be given because it's a name that speaks of supremacy. The title Lord was so highly revered by the Jews that when they read it in Scripture, they wouldn't even pronounce it. They wouldn't say the words. Now, you already know this, that when you see the word Lord capitalized in the Old Testament, that that's actually Yahweh, or we say Jehovah now. And so when they came to that word in the oral readings of the text, they would stop and they wouldn't say that. Instead, what they would do is they would substitute another word. And the word that they would put in its place is one you've also probably heard. It's the word Adonai. And so they would say that instead of the actual name of God. And so when a Christian in the New Testament said, Jesus is Lord, he was actually relating that back to that Old Testament practice of not even saying the name of God, but rather saying Adonai, Jesus is Lord. So that's the equivalent of saying Jesus is Jehovah. Now that's what we studied earlier when we were talking about the descent of Christ. We were speaking about the equality of Jesus, the equality that, that Jesus in the New Testament is the same as Jehovah in the Old Testament. And this is what the Word of God says, that every knee shall bow before that name. 
And when we get there, and at this time, when, when uh, Jesus, when God stands before us, no one is going to say, well, worship the God of your choice. Because there will be no other choices. All will respect the supremacy of Jesus Christ by calling him Lord. Now, the second thing we notice about it is that he's crowned with sovereignty. The title Lord is indicative indicative of sovereignty. Now, sovereignty also carries with it the idea of supremacy, but it also means that uh, uh, it means self-governing. It means autonomous. It means that there's no one who grants authority because this is an authority that stands exclusive of all others. Now, sometimes we use the word sovereignty a little bit differently. We uh, will say something like the United States is a sovereign nation. And what we mean is that the United States is self-governing. No one has the authority to rule over us. But when we say that, we also admit that there are other other governments in the world that are also sovereign. There are other countries that have the right, uh, uh, they're autonomous, and they can rule rule their own people. But when we speak about Christ as being sovereign, we do not admit to any other sovereigns. He's sovereign over all. Christ's power and authority are it. And the exclusivity of Christ's sovereignty is declared here in verse number 10 when it says things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth must bow to him. Now when we get to point number, uh, the second part of the sermon rather next to the next time that we talk about this, we'll get into that. But this is pretty much covering everything. Things in heaven and things in the earth and things under the earth all are going to bow before Jesus. Well, sovereignty... Teaching about the sovereignty of God is one is a subject that's rejected by a lot of people. And they don't like to talk about sovereignty because they think that that makes God nothing more than just a hard, cold reality. That God must be insensitive to us if he is our sovereign. And so that means that God is aloof and uncaring about us. And so they say if God has to be sovereign, if he is sovereign, then you must naturally believe in fatalism. Nothing is left to chance. Nothing is by choice. Whatever happens is going to happen. And so God has pre-programmed people to uh, be like robots, and we always carry out every determination of God. And so they object to the term sovereignty. But what they fail to realize is that the one who ascended at first descended. I mean, he came to this earth as a personal God. And although he does order and direct everything that comes to pass in this universe, yet he is sensitive to our needs. And he orders and directs everything that he does to the best outcome of his people. And so, yes, God is sovereign because he has a plan in which he directs everything that comes to pass. And if we were left alone without God's sovereignty, then what would happen is that, yes, we would bow before him, We would still have to bow before him, but we could only bow before him in anguish and torment. But he is a sovereign God who is interested in the affairs of his creatures, and so he is a personal God. Now let me finish part number one of the message with this statement. Christ descended to enable salvation, and he has now ascended to enact salvation. You see, if Christ didn't return to his throne, then all the work that he did on earth would be pointless. If he didn't go back to heaven, everything he did would be totally fruitless. And so if he's not exalted to be Lord over all, and if we don't believe that, then we can't believe that he's Lord at all. 
And that would mean that our salvation is endangered. The only way that we're totally safe and secure in our salvation, if this comes true, and that is that Christ subdues all enemies under his feet. All must bow. And that's the only way that we can have salvation guaranteed. So praise God for this. The Son of God who descended did not end it all when he went to the cross. His humiliation as the Son of God was a demonstration that he cares for us, that he has concern for us, that he has a love for his creatures. And then the ascension as the Son of Man is to identify us as his and then to bring us into the presence of the Heavenly Father. So he enabled our salvation by the cross, and he enacts it by his crown. His name is above every other name. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for time spent in your word tonight, and it's always profitable when we look into your word and we discover things about Jesus and the work that he's done for us. Help us, Lord, to be students of your word and to try our best through your help, through the Holy Spirit working in us to understand these things better. Bless in our invitation tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.